Hear the word of God. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some some uh, lintish, some linty stats for you. Forty million. I, I just pulled these off the internet this morning while I was sitting in the sanctuary. This isn't how I was going to start the sermon, but then I thought it'd be good to just reflect on these statistics for a moment. It's always good to start. Yes. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Bob is a professional statistician. So, Bob, don't call me on any of these. I mean, they're on the internet. All right. Yeah. 40 million, 40 million U.S. adults regularly visit pornographic websites. On average, Americans spend eight hours a day watching Netflix or some other streaming service. Like, on average, eight hours. A day. A day. So some people are just constantly on there. But this is a day. Um, on average, we tap, swipe, and click our phones 2,617 times each day. And some of that is when we're visiting pornographic websites and streaming Netflix. Uh, on average, Americans consume 9.5 alcoholic drinks each week. The average American, uh, let's see if I can read my handwriting. Oh. Average American eats about a ton of food every year. A ton of food every year, which is, which by the way, is just like way, way more than we need to eat. And um, of the food that we buy, about 40% of it is wasted. It just goes right into the trash. Um, average Americans, an, an average American holds a debt balance of over $96,000, which is related to the food, and to the Netflix, and to the phones, and to the porn. I mean, uh, it's almost like, it's almost like we have an appetite problem. 
It's almost like our desires are out of order. Um, John chapter 6 begins with the famous story of Jesus feeding thousands of people on a mountainside. And, and you remember that he takes this very simple meal, um, uh, loaves and fish. He takes them from a kid. <laughs> Imagine being that kid. <laughs> hey, kid, give me your lunch. Well, he, t- he takes the kid's lunch, but then he multiplies that to feed the multitude. Thousands of people are fed. And, and everyone eats, and everyone eats their full. They're all satiated and satisfied, and there's even leftover 12 baskets of food. The people are amazed by this, and they want to take Jesus by force to make him king because you want that kind of person to rule for you, the kind of person who can, who can feed you. And uh, instead of accepting that, Jesus withdraws, and he goes off to be by himself. And that's when we get the passage that we looked at last week of the disciples crossing this stormy sea and Jesus coming to them in the midst of the storm. And now where our passage picks up, They're on the other side of the sea, and the crowds have found Jesus again. Why are they seeking him out? Because they haven't forgotten this miracle of him feeding the multitudes. They haven't forgotten um, that here's one who can give them bread when they're hungry. What becomes apparent pretty quickly, though, is that the crowd is really just after more food, more bread. They say to Jesus, hey, remember Moses, he brought bread straight down out of heaven, and can you do something like that for us? Can you, bring, can you bring bread down out of heaven for us like Moses did? See, they, see, they're after more food. And Jesus wants to draw their desire to a deeper hunger, uh, to a deeper desire. Um, he's challenging them not to be so preoccupied with their physical appetites as important as those, as those may be, but he wants them to turn to what truly satisfies what he calls the food that endures to eternal life. And so Jesus makes the occasion for the crowd's physical hunger an opportunity to highlight their spiritual hunger. He's showing them and us that that these two are related, that our physical hunger and our spiritual hunger, our physical appetites and our spiritual appetites are like deeply connected. And and this is actually a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Really, from the very beginning, the English poet Geoffrey Chaucer, um, writing in the 14th century, he penned these lines. He says, O cursed gluttony, our first distress, cause of our first confusion, first temptation, the very origin of our damnation. What's he talking about? Um, You remember the story, God places our first parents in a garden, which is this place of this beauty and abundance and provision where they have everything that they need. And he tells them that they can eat freely from any tree in this garden except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they eat from that tree, they'll die. So God says, don't eat from it so you won't die. Don't eat from it so that you'll live. Here they are. They're entirely cared for. They have everything they need. And then there's that snake, which is such a perplexing part of the story this talking snake shows up and they listen to the snake they trust the snake and they distrust God's goodness and care and so we read that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and you see there it is like oh cursed gluttony 
oh, cursed gluttony. What are they really doing? See, they're trying to satisfy themselves apart from God. They're trying to find fulfillment without him. They think that the fruit of that forbidden tree will make them like God. Who doesn't want to be like God? Full, satisfied. Um, and, and so they eat. But their eating then is an expression of like this deep inner resistance that they have to depending on God, to needing God, to meet their needs. They're taking God's responsibility onto themselves. They're, they're eating there in the garden becomes a way of actually keeping God at a distance, keeping God removed. They eat because they want God-likeness, but they want it on their terms without wanting God himself. And, and so they, they end up believing that the food they craved from that one forbidden tree could give them something that, um, that God could not give or that God would not give, like wisdom and fulfillment and life. And I wonder, family, what bread are you hoping is going to give you life? Um, the tragedy is that God wanted all of those things for Adam and Eve. He just wanted it in his way, in, in his time, and their appetites overcame their trust. They stopped seeing God as being enough for them. They needed more. And, and we see that theme replay itself over and over in the Bible story. Think of Esau. Uh, here's a guy willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of soup because he's hungry. Uh, he, he, satiating his immediate physical appetite becomes more important to him than God's call on his life. God had a plan for Esau, a purpose for Esau, a call on Esau's life, and Esau says, I will turn away from that so that I can eat soup. Think of Israel. After being rescued from slavery in Egypt, they immediately, remember what they start doing? What? Remember what they do? As soon as they're led out of Egypt, start grumbling, complaining. And you remember what they're grumbling about? Food. Food. It's like, um, yeah, it's like, it's like they're, they're complaining. They're, they're saying to Moses, like, you brought us out here to die of hunger. Here's what they say. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots. <laughs> when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us with hunger. See, better to be enslaved but full than to be free and hungry. Several weeks ago, we talked about sin as missing the mark. And, and we can also, we can take that basic idea of sin as missing the mark, and we can look at that through the lens of hunger. Hunger. Like, sin is an appetite gone wrong. It's a dissatisfaction with God, and, and, and instead of looking to God, we start looking to created things for what only God can provide. Um, it, it's, sin is taking part of God's good creation um, that, that might very well be meant to fill us in some limited way, but um, making that what matters above everything else. Or maybe using that to gloss over like the deeper hunger that we have in us for God. And so all of the ancient teachers of the church 
have agreed that our physical appetites are like just deeply connected with our spiritual appetites. Um, that, it, that what goes on in our stomachs and in our metaphorical stomachs is deeply related to what goes on in our souls. That, our, um, that there's a connection here between um, physical appetites and spiritual appetites. John of the Cross, he's a 6th century monk. He said that we are constantly prone to aesthetic, intellectual, and spiritual gluttony. Just always wanting more. We're constantly seeking to draw our own ultimate happiness from anything and everything other than God. And, and we do this even though God alone is the only one capable of needing, meeting our, our deep hunger. See, oh, cursed gluttony. Oh, cursed gluttony. When you and I hear the word gluttony, um, we're immediately thinking of food and overeating. Uh, and that's true. I mean, that, that is what gluttony is, is about, first and foremost. And, and that's bad for our bodies, which we know, and, it, and it's also bad for our souls. Do you know that? Um, but we're, really, we can become gluttons for just about anything. Um, like, like in one way or another, we replay that garden scene, that very early garden scene, uh, just over and over again in our own lives. God says, I am enough. God says, trust me, depend on me. And we say, sure you are. But then here's Netflix. And, and here's my phone with just endless opportunity for digital distraction. And, and here's, um, here's a pizza that I could throw in the oven. And, and here's, a, here's a new six-pack of beer. I mean, God is enough, but I have all of these things that I can use to just um, cover over my deep hunger for him. I wonder, family, where does this connect with you? Like, where, where do you know? Where do you know? Like, you don't need me to tell you. You don't need to diagnose it for you. You know your life is out of order. You know that your desires are out of order. Um, you've taken a good gift from God and you've elevated it to a place in your life higher than it ought to be, or you're, you're taking the good gifts of God and you're just cramming yourself so full of them that you have no room for God himself. I mean, here are some diagnostic questions you could ask yourself. What do you instinctively turn to when you're upset? Or, or when you're bored? What do you do with your boredom? How do you deal with fear and anxiety? What do you find yourself turning to for comfort and peace? Um, when you feel empty or when you feel restless, uh, what do you do to try to bring calm to your soul? Um, or, or finish this sentence. I'll really be okay once I get You finish the sentence. My morning coffee. Home so that I can pour a glass of wine. To the gym for another exercise. On to Netflix for the next episode. Like, see, like, where does your heart run to distract itself from the deep, deep hunger of your soul? In one way or another, I think we're all gluttons. We're all users and abusers. 
and, and here's the scary thing. Um, these things we consume so often end up consuming us. You know that? You remember Edmund from The Lion, Witch, The Witch, and The Wardrobe? Like, all he wanted was what? You remember? Turkish delight. Just a little more Turkish delight. Um, all he wanted was that, and, and he could not control his appetite for it, even when it just brought ruin into his life, right? Like, it separated him from his family, from the people he loved and who loved him. It separated him even from Aslan himself. Later, once he's healed and, and freed from that, he says, this is Edmund reflecting on Turkish delight, anyone who tasted it would want more and more of it and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it until they killed themselves. See, oh, cursed gluttony. It is cursed. Uh, this is the power of what we indulge in. The things we crave can betray us and lead us to ruin. And, and so we find ourselves more and more isolated from our true king. And we find our desire for God just growing weaker and weaker. Why desire God when I've got pizza and beer in the fridge? We stuff our stomachs and our souls wither. And so, what do we do about this? Um, this, is a, this is a human problem. It might be in some ways like a distinctively American problem. What do we do about this? What hope is there for gluttons like us? Let me suggest a few things. First, I mean, a place to start is just to acknowledge that it's a problem and to acknowledge that within us is a deep, deep hunger for God. Um, you know, St. Augustine, he, said, he famously said that our souls are restless until they rest in God. I think that's true. I don't always live like that's true. Um, like that, that my deepest, truest hunger is one that only God will satisfy. The writer of Ecclesiastes, he puts it like this, God has set eternity in the souls of people. And, and see, that's like an itch that Instagram just can't scratch. Like eternity. I guess, I mean, you could technically scroll forever on Instagram, but it won't scratch the itch for eternity that's placed in your heart. There's like this Grand Canyon in your soul that another pizza won't, won't fill. Just can't fill. How many pizzas would it take to fill the Grand Canyon? It's a lot of pizzas. What we're really after is not that, but God. Um, and, and when we see that, we can begin to own it and we can begin to address some of the ways our appetites are just really disordered. They've really gone wrong. Um, we can say, yes, the mindless scrolling is often just another way we attempt to keep God at a distance. The, the stress eating is a way we turn to one of God's good gifts, to food, instead of turning to God himself for what we really want. Um, this is something that, that the 12-step programs, I think, gets really right. Uh, they, they encourage us to say, we admit that we are powerless over whatever it is, like food, sex, alcohol, drugs, all of these addictions that our lives... Um, our lives have become so unmanageable because of them, and that only one greater than ourselves, only one greater than ourselves, will ever be able to restore us to sanity. 
And, and so that's a place to start, family. Just acknowledge um, that there's a problem here and that we have this deep, deep hunger that only God can satisfy. Only God can satisfy. Here's something else we can do. Second, we can begin to retrain our appetites. You are not powerless in the face of your appetites. Sometimes you feel powerless, but you're not powerless in the face of your appetites. Um, we, we can start to practice habits that actually retrain our appetites and redirect our desires. You know, this is the second Sunday of Lent, and uh, it's a season during which the church has traditionally um, focused on themes of repentance and in precisely this retraining of the soul, redirecting our desires toward what is good and true and beautiful. The best known practice of Lent is fasting um, because our physical appetites and spiritual appetites are related. I mean, the church has always seen that there's a way to do your soul good by um, restraining and retraining your physical appetites. And so fasting voluntarily gives up something, traditionally food, for a specific time in order to intentionally begin to increase our hunger for God. And, and so fasting is like this frontal assault on our tendency to take responsibility for our own pleasure and happiness and fulfillment apart from God. Usually, um, we use food to cover over spiritual hunger. Do you know that? Like, yes, we have to eat, but we don't have to eat how we eat. We use food to cover over profound spiritual hunger. And uh, you can find this out by fasting, by, by letting that hunger just be exposed and known. Um, we don't want to deal with the hunger. We don't want to deal with the deep dissatisfaction in our soul, and so we just keep cramming our stomachs or our metaphorical stomachs. We keep going to the phone, going to the streaming services, and fasting just says, stop, stop. And, and just for a, for a while, maybe for an afternoon, maybe for a moment, forsake all of that and let your hunger be exposed and let it be known and then let it be re-aimed and redirected at God. So you say, ah, here's the one. This is the only one that can give me what my heart's really after. My phone's not going to do it for me. That show's not going to do it for me. Another delicious gourmet meal's not going to do it for me. Porn's not going to do it for me. Here he is. This is the one. So typically, fasting is done with food. Um, but, but you know that there's just so much more pulling at your heart. There's so much more that clamors for your attention. Um, and, and so it can be appropriate to just turn away from any of that, fast from any of that. I invite you to experiment with that this week and in the weeks to come, especially leading up to Easter. Like, how might you stop stuffing your stomach, literal or metaphorical, and start feeding your soul? This isn't about earning points with God. It's not the God we know in Jesus Christ. This is about aiming the longings of your heart at him. It's about increasing your desire for him. It's about 
deepening your dependence on him. It's about trusting him to give you what you really need. So, so we can recognize our hunger. We can begin to retrain our longings. And then finally, and most importantly, um, look at Jesus Christ. Feast on Jesus Christ. See that here is the one you want. You know, earlier we talked about our first parent, Adam and Eve, and how they succumbed to their physical appetites and they rejected God and they sought happiness apart from him. Um, well, family... What the first Adam lost, the second Adam, Jesus, has regained for us. Um, you know, Jesus, remember, he began his ministry. Do, do you remember what he does, like, right off the bat after he's baptized by John in the Jordan? Yeah, he goes out into the desert, and he fasts, right? And, and while he's in the desert, the devil comes to him and tempts him, with the very things that Adam and Eve succumb to, and that all of us succumb to, like on a pretty regular basis. And so he was tempted to turn stones into bread and to put his own appetite before God's promise of provision. And he was tempted to power and to self sufficiency and to self display. And he was tempted to trust himself in his own independence and his own authority rather than relying on God's. And in every case, Jesus resisted. Every case he resisted. He did not give in to his appetites. Instead, he just let his deep hunger be exposed and known, and he aimed it at his father. And he just kept doing this throughout his ministry. He refused to take control over his own life, and he constantly chose the way of sacrifice and service instead of self-gratification. He depended on his father again and again for his fulfillment and security and joy. And then at the end of his life, he gathers around a table his friends. And he shares a meal with them. And he picks up some bread and he says, this is my body. And he, and he picks up the cup and he says, this is my blood. And he says, all of this is for you. It's like Jesus is showing us then that the whole world was lost at a meal in the garden and he's showing us how the whole world will be regained and restored and healed, won back. And so he stands up from that table and he pushes in his chair and he marches out to die. He marches out to die for our disordered loves. He marches out to die for people's whose appetites are a real mess and uh, who, who won't get it right. Certainly not between now and Easter. That crowd chased Jesus around the sea because they wanted more food. And Jesus called them on it. He basically says, like, you're seeking me not for me, but because you think I'm going to help you get what you really want, which is something other than me. And I wonder if that's your plan. To bring Jesus into some, uh, some project you have up and running for yourself to, to feed yourself, and you just make Jesus a little part of that. Jesus will call you on that. 
not what I'm doing. I'm not helping you get to some other end. He's saying, I am the end. I meant. He says, don't work for the food that perishes. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. So there's work to do, but what is it? I mean, he tells us, right? He says, um, he says, it's belief or it's trust. Um, it's the work of, of relying on him. And it is work to do that. It is work to do that. Like, I don't know about you. I don't. I don't wake up in the morning just like, uh, er, like morning after morning, just naturally wanting to completely rely on Jesus. Some mornings, but they're rare, honestly. A lot of mornings I wake up and I start thinking about what's on my plate and I start fretting and feeling anxious about this or that. And, and so Jesus says, "There's work to do," but it's. It's not, um, it's not the work of like slaying a dragon. It, it's not the work of like going off and doing some really super hard thing. It's the work of daily, day after day, taking the weight of your life and just putting it on Jesus. Trusting him with it all. Trusting him to satisfy you. Trust, trusting him to give you what you really need. Hear his promise. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. She who believes in me will never be thirsty. Whoever believes in me will never be hungry or thirsty. I mean, that's just an insane thing for a human being to say. I'm the bread of life. Believe in me and you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. But family, Jesus says it. He says it. I love what Heather shared earlier. Um, I want, sometimes, sometimes I have this image of Jesus. Like he's, he's kind of stingy and withholding. Where, do I, where does that come from? It doesn't come from the Gospels. It's just, it just comes from me or, or the one who hates my soul. It, it comes from somewhere else. Like, that Jesus is just wanting me to experience like little bits here and there. Like he's dishing out his grace in teaspoons. But, but here's one who comes to us who just rains down manna from heaven. if we would just have eyes to see it or, or hearts that actually trust it. Like, here's one who's totally for us, who's not withholding himself in any way whatsoever. So, this week you might experiment with fasting. That might be a way you exercise your trust in Jesus, that you just practice trusting him. Goodness gracious, family, if you can't trust Jesus with one meal, what are we doing? What are we doing? You can say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up this meal so that my deep hunger 
forgive us of what's first and know that I'm going to aim the longings of my heart at him. You can do that. Here's another way you can exercise your trust in Jesus. Um, you can come to this table and you can feast. Uh, you can come to this table maybe with this prayer on your heart. This is an old um, section of one of Charles Wesley's hymns. And I thought, ah, this is good. He writes, me with that restless thirst inspire, that sacred infinite desire, and feast my hungry heart. Less than thyself cannot suffice. My soul for all thy fullness cries, for all thou hast and art. You see, he's, he's praying to Jesus. Less than thyself cannot suffice. My soul for all thy fullness cries, for all thou 